The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. See Christ in His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the book of Galatians, to Galatians chapter 3. We continue to make our way through this book. Today's passage is Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29. Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Let's now give our attention to God speaking to us in His holy and eternal word. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. God, now be pleased to add His blessing to it. Well, if you do a Bible reading plan, you'll spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. I believe the Old Testament's about 75-76% of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, you'll spend a lot of time reading about the Old Covenant, particularly all the instructions and laws that were given to them, things that we do not follow today. Things such as uh, what type of sacrifice to offer, how you offer up that sacrifice, so forth and so on. And you also see that to Israel was given this covenant whereby if they were not obedient, they would be cursed. However, if they were obedient, then they will they would be blessed. And the question that's going to come into your mind as you're reading through this is this. How does this apply to me today? Am I to keep these laws? Obviously not. We don't keep the sacrificial laws today, but why are they preserved for me today? And is it the case that I am to be obedient enough in order to be blessed and avoid being judged by God? Is that what I'm to learn from this? Well, Paul is answering that question here in Galatians 3, as we've been looking at. In verse 19, he asks, why then the law? And when he says the law here, he's not referring to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, which is based on his eternal character of what is right for all peoples everywhere at all time. It's always been right to not commit adultery. It's always been right to not murder, to not steal, so forth and so on. Rather, when he says the law here, he's referring to the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, the core of which were the Ten Commandments, but it came with all the dressings of the ceremonial laws And it came in the form of a covenant of, do this if you want to live long in the land. Don't do this, you will surely be cursed. That is what Paul is talking about here. Why did God give that? Well, we saw last week that it was to show us the greatness of our sin and misery. 
so that we would not rely on the works of the law to be justified, that is to stand before God as righteous, but rather we would look to Christ in faith to be justified. And Paul continues to expand on that today in our passage. And as an outline, three purposes of the law of Moses, the Old Covenant, not to be confused with the three uses of the law. Okay? Three purposes of the law of Moses. And these are just catch words to help us remember. Uh, prison, prepare, and perish. Three purposes of the law. First is this. Prison. That is, it was to imprison us. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So here Paul mentions the word faith, but he's not talking about this personal individual faith that each one of us has. It was obvious during the Old Testament times that God's people had faith. And Hebrews 11 is one such example. Rather, when Paul says faith coming, he is referring to the object of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the parallel in verse 24 with this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So that's paralleled with faith coming. Before faith refers to this period in redemptive history up until the coming of Christ. It's the period where God placed His people under the law of Moses. This covenant of works that says, do this if you want to be blessed. You need works of the law in order to inherit the blessing. Now, the blessing was not heaven itself, neither was it salvation under the old covenant, the law of Moses. Rather, the rewards were earthly. You'll live long in the land. Your enemies won't attack you. You will have safety. You will have prosperity. You will have peace. Your harvests will be good. Your women will bear children, so forth and so on. That was under the Old Covenant. These were the blessings that they were to obtain if they obeyed. But the curses were, you're going to be thrust out of the land. You're going to be given over into your enemy's hand. But these were earthly. These were earthly. These were physical pictures. These were types of spiritual realities. For example, the land of Canaan pointed to the heavenly Canaan, the heavenly Jerusalem. Entering their rest in Canaan pointed to God's people entering their rest eternally in heaven. These were types. But what was the point of God putting His people under a law of works if He knew that they couldn't do it because they're fallen sinners? God is not fooled. God was not surprised when they failed utterly. But why did He do it? Well, it is as our verse says, to hold us captive under sin or under law, it was to imprison us. It was to throw us in prison, to throw us in a spiritual prison. The reason why someone is thrown in prison is because he broke the law. Now, of course, that's outside of dictatorships and that sort of thing, of political enemies. But commonly, the reason why somebody is thrown in prison is because they violated a law. And they must stay in prison until the requirements of that law are fulfilled. 20 years in prison if you do this, 10 years in prison if you do this, until that is paid for, 
They are locked up in prison. Well, this is what God did by giving this law. He gave a law that He knew that they would break and stand condemned for because this points us back to our condition in the first Adam. To Adam was given this positive commandment. That is, it was added on to the moral law. And that is, don't eat from the tree. He ate, failed, and stood condemned, and we all stood condemned in him. And to picture this, to picture this plight, the status of condemnation that we are under, being born in Adam. God gave this law. God gave this law which was always right, which always needed to be fulfilled. He made it explicitly clear. Don't worship any other God. And if you do that, you won't stand condemned. If you do, you'll stand condemned. And of course, he gave other laws. And what happened almost immediately? They failed. And they stood condemned. And this highlights our plight as well. This is why Paul says in verse 22 that he imprisoned everyone under sin, included, including us. The law is to show us the greatness of our sin and misery. To show us that we stand condemned. To lock us up until somebody fulfilled the law for us. And who would that be? Who would come and release us from this spiritual prison? Well, the prophet Isaiah lets us in on who that would be. Gives us a clue. Isaiah 61, there's this person speaking, and this person says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So this is an anointed one. This is the anointed one, which means Christ. And He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Uh, This is the Christ. This is the anointed one who would come and open up the prison to those who are bound, that is, to those who are in prison. When did we see Christ do this in His earthly ministry? He run around and open prison doors and say, leave, you're free to go. No, we never saw him do that. In fact, this is why John the Baptist was a bit confused. Because John the Baptist was bound in prison. And he said, are, are you the one to come? If you're the one to come, then why am I in prison? Well, it's because Christ would come and release us from our spiritual prison. That is standing under the condemnation of God for having violated His law. It's talking about releasing people from their spiritual bonds. What does it look like to be in spiritual prison? Well, what it looks like to be in spiritual prison is to be under the sentence of death. It's to be dead in your trespasses and sins. Being born dead dead in your trespasses and sins is a punishment. It's not natural. It's part of God. When God says to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
It's not only physical where now he's returning to the dust. It's also spiritual. Spiritually dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Therefore a captive of Satan under the condemnation of the law. You stand dead. And of course, that's going to eventually lead to eternal death unless God intervenes. It's like an inmate on death row. His final punishment is coming, but in the meantime, he is in prison. He's a dead man walking. And that is the way we are by nature, dead in our trespasses and sins. How are we released from that? Well, Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills the law for us prisoners. He is the one that fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfills, do this and live. And He did it. He obeyed the law personally, perpetually, and perfectly. And He did it for us so that we would get credit for His righteousness. And then He goes to the cross and He pays the penal requirements of the law. He is crucified in our place. And the fact that He fulfilled the whole law is evidenced by the fact that He rose from the dead. He did not stay dead. Death could not hold Him because He had paid the penalty in full. And so He came out of the grave. He rose to newness of life, to eternal life. And we who are in Christ, we who have Christ as our representative, have been raised to this new life with Him. Because He fulfilled the law for us. We are no longer dead. We are alive together with Christ. We have eternal life now. And we will have the fullness of this life in the world to come. So the law shows us the greatness of our sin and misery. It shows us that we are under condemnation. It, it expresses to us why we stand condemned. So that we can look to Christ, to the one who would fulfill all righteousness for us. And therefore, be justified by faith. That is declared righteous, declared just, declared as if we had kept the whole law perfectly without ever having kept it. We receive it by faith. And so the law is meant to show us our guilt, our inability, and to show us our need for Christ. And this brings us to the second purpose of the law. That is, it is to prepare us Christ. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul says that the law, the old covenant, was our guardian. Now, almost every major translation uses a different word here. The King James Version uses schoolmaster. The NASB uses tutor. And what's going on is that the English translators are trying to find a word to describe a practice that went on back then that we don't practice today. There's real no one-to-one parallel to describe this guardian. Uh, the Greek word Paul used here is pedagogos, from which we get the word pedagogue. And so you can see tutor or schoolmaster. Uh, however, what this referred to back then was either a hired person or a slave who was responsible for training a child. It was like 
he was the personal trainer of this child, not for physical exercise, but for just teaching him the ways of life, the basics of life. Uh, perhaps nanny is uh, the best parallel or closest association we have in our day. But his responsibilities would be primarily to train the child in basic logic, arithmetic, writing, ethics. They didn't have a public school system uh, back then, and so this was the way that they learned. And this pedagogos was responsible for disciplining the child when he misbehaved, to keep him in line, really to prepare him for life until he was mature enough to receive the inheritance that the Father had promised to him. And so this was until the time that the child became an adult and was therefore ready for the inheritance. And this is what Paul says the Old Covenant is for the people of God. It was put in place during the stage of redemptive history before the coming of Christ in order to train us and prepare us for Christ. And it did this by putting God's people under our law that says this is what is required for righteousness. This is what God expects. Personal, perpetual, perfect obedience or you are cursed. And this is something that you cannot achieve. If you try it, you will fail. Every time you try it, you're going to get whipped. You're going to get beat. It's like touching a hot stove. It's going to burn. It's meant to teach us a lesson so that we will flee to Christ. Many of us have had children that have done something foolish. And they got hurt doing it. They suffered major consequences doing it. And we say, well, at least they learned their lesson. This is what the Old Covenant is about. Try to do this. Try to rely on the works of the law. You're going to learn your lesson. It was a big, grand lesson for all of us to learn. That's why it's recorded for us in Scripture. And so the law of Moses also showed us what would be needed for forgiveness of sins in order to approach God. He used this in a picture with animals. When you sin, Something needs to die. Blood needs to be shed. That is what is required to atone for your sin. And of course, this pointed us to Christ. This pointed us to the need for high priest to offer up on our behalf a sacrifice. It pointed to the need for cleanliness. To have our sins washed away. It pointed to what was clean and unclean, and that we were unclean, and what it would require for us to become clean before God. All of this pointed to Christ, that Christ alone is the answer. Look to Christ. And so this old covenant was our pedagogue training us to look to Christ so that we would be justified by faith alone. And now that Christ has come, it's no longer needed. It's fulfilled its purpose. We now receive uh, the inheritance the way it's always been meant to be received, which is by hearing with faith. And that's Paul's point here. Also, Paul's saying, look, you who want to be back under the law, you're missing the point of the Old Covenant. It is meant to point us 
the Christ, to receive the inheritance the way Abraham received it. And this brings us to the third purpose of the law of Moses, or the old covenant, and that, that is perish. It was meant to perish. It was never meant to be permanent. Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Christ has come, the object of our faith. The substance of all the shadows of the law has come. Therefore, its service is no longer required. And if you get the point of the Old Covenant, you will see that it is no longer needed. You're no longer a child, as it were. You've matured enough to look to Christ. And this pedagogue during this time was also around to prepare the son to receive his inheritance. Once the son received his inheritance, his service was no longer required. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, Back in that day, a daughter did not receive an inheritance from her father. Rather, she shared it with her husband. But the son was an heir. The son was the one who received an inheritance. And so this is why Paul calls all believers, whether male or female, sons, because all receive an inheritance. The law's job was to prepare us to receive this inheritance by training us sons to look to Christ. And this is how we become sons, through faith in Christ, as Paul says here. Through faith, he says in verse 26. And Paul goes on to explain this in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now Paul likely mentions baptism here because uh, the sign is no longer circumcision. Remember what the false teachers were saying. They were saying you need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's saying that's not even a sign anymore. It's baptism. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that we have been baptized into Christ? Well, given the whole of Scripture, it would be heresy to say that by virtue of going through the act of baptism, of getting dunked in water, that you are that you go from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being made alive together with Christ, or that somehow you're united to Christ by going through that act. If that was the case, I believe we would be justified to take every visitor and child and force them into the water. If that was the case, if that really did truly save them, we would form a deacon tackling team. We'd go tackle people. Force them into the water. They're screaming. You'll thank thank us later. That's what we would do if that was uh, the case. But that is not uh, the case. But the Scripture uses baptism into Christ as a synonym for union with Christ. Union with Christ is that invisible, but very real spiritual connection or bond, inseparable bond, unbreakable bond, that we have with Christ where we become one in spirit with our Lord so that what happens to Christ happens to us. And the, the phrase that Scripture uses for union with Christ is in Christ or in Him. 
It's really a word picture. It's as if we are in Christ so that we become one with Him. So that whatever happens to Him happens to us. So when He died, we died with Him to our old life. When He was buried, we were buried with Him. And when He was raised from the dead, we too were raised with Him because of our union with Christ, our oneness with Christ being in Him. And baptism is the powerful symbol and sign of this reality. Going down into the water and coming up out of the water symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ by virtue of our union with Him. So Paul uses the sign, baptism, to refer to the thing it signifies. Our union with Christ in His death, burial, Resurrection. And Paul says that all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, the tie between baptism and putting on Christ as clothing comes from the Old Testament. As we saw when we went through Exodus, which I don't blame you if you don't remember, I don't even remember what I preached last week. So, but as we saw, as we went through Exodus, there were baptisms in the Old Testament. It was the ritual that the priests went through before they entered into their temple service. Hebrews 9.10 refers to this, and in our English translations, it's called washings. Uh, but the Greek word is baptismois, referring to baptism. That's the word for baptism. So it's referring to what the priests went through in the Old Testament before entering their priestly service as baptism. And what the priest would do is uh, before the gathered assembly of the people of God, they would wash their whole bodies in preparation for entering into temple service. And that baptism is what every believer goes through today because it's not just the Old Testament priest. It's not just a select group of people who go through it today, rather because all of God's people are priests to God and have access to God, all of them go through baptism as this symbol uh, that their sins have been washed away and that they are prepared uh, to serve in His temple. And just as the Old Testament priests got baptized before they served in the temple, so do New Testament priests, us, uh, as a visible entrance into uh, his church, prepared to serve in the temple today, which is the church. But after the baptism, do you remember what happened? Well, immediately after the baptism, the priest put on new clothing. The priest put on clothing that made them fit to serve in the temple. And of course, this points to Christ. Paul is picking up on this from the Old Testament. It says that all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Of course, not literal fabric or literal clothing, but rather Christ's perfect robe of righteousness, which is what our baptism symbolizes. That we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that we are presented in His sight, holy and blameless and above reproach, and we have access to His presence now because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. And 
we are now now that we are ready to serve, we then begin to put off in a sanctification sense the sins that are not like Christ. We put off those sins and we put on Christ's likeness as by his grace we walk with him. But that flows out of our true identity in Christ that we who have believed have already put off the old man and put on the new man as symbolized by our baptism. But because we have been baptized into God's Son, we are His true adopted sons. We are all equally God's sons and therefore equally heirs. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what is interesting about what Paul says here is he's actually following a common Jewish prayer that the men would pray during that day. Listen to the prayer that they pray during that day. Blessed be the Lord our God, that He has made me an Israelite, a Jew. That He has not made me a Gentile. That He has not made me a slave. That He has not made me a woman. That was the common prayer that Jewish men would pray during that time. Now look at what Paul says in verse 28. He reverses that prayer. Here there is neither these things nor that things. Now this is not to obliterate the physical distinctions between male and female. A woman cannot hold office of pastor or deacon in the church. Or a clear distinction between Jew and Gentile in Romans 11. Otherwise, how could God go to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous? Paul's not denying these real physical distinctions, but rather what he is saying is that in Christ, there are no distinctions as it pertains to our ultimate identity, as it pertains to our inheritance. The inheritance is the context here. He's even going to go on in the next verse to say, because you're sons, you're all heirs. This is what he's talking about here in the, in the context. Jews do not get a different inheritance than Gentiles. Here there is no distinction. Some assume that God bringing in the Jews later and making them jealous by going to the Gentiles, as we see in Romans 11, means that God is going to give the Jews a separate inheritance of their own land. But not only is the land a type of the new heavens and the new earth, it's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. That because we are all equally sons, we all get the same inheritance. In fact, even Gentiles are called Abraham's offspring. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul doesn't just say that Jew and Gentile are one, as he says in the previous verse. He goes beyond that and says that these Gentile Galatians are Abraham's offspring. Let me ask you this. What makes a Jew a Jew? Is that you're Abraham's offspring. But this is what Paul says here to these Gentiles. And us who are in Christ. You are. Abraham's offspring, even though your physical lineage cannot be traced to him. He said, you are Abraham's offspring. 
And then elsewhere, Paul will say that physical descendants of Abraham are actually not Abraham's offspring. In Romans 9, when Paul is answering the question, has God's promises failed to the Israelites? He answers that question by saying, all those who are from Israel, these are not Israel. Paul says that it is not those who are physical descendants of Israel who are Israel. And he goes on to say, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. So just because you are related to Abraham in the flesh, a physical descendant, does not make you his offspring. This is why Jesus could tell the Jewish Pharisees in John 8, you are not Abraham's children. You're not doing his deeds. And this is why Paul says in Romans 2 that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is not a matter of the letter, but of the heart by the Spirit. This is also Paul's response to the Galatian heretics who are saying that you need to be circumcised to be counted as part of God's people. Paul is saying, you are Abraham's offspring. You are a true Jew if you are in Christ. You have received the circumcision of the Spirit. It is because they are in the offspring of Abraham to whom all the promises were made and in whom all the promises are yes and amen. That is why we are co-heirs with Christ. What Christ gets, we get. And this also brings up another issue. Uh, we tend to focus on our earthly identity in the church, don't we? You know, anytime someone says, I don't fit in in this group, I don't fit in in the church, usually it's followed with because of some earthly identity. I'm single, not people my age, they're not in my lot of life, my demographic. And while it's, it's good to be with uh, people your age and to be in others who are in your demographic, yet that is not our ultimate identity. Our ultimate identity is not earthly, it's spiritual. It's that we are one in Christ. That in that sense we have just as much in common with a single person as a married person. That we all do fit in because we are one body in Christ. And when we understand our spiritual and ultimate identity of being in Christ, then we get that. Then we get it. But the point of the law of Moses, the old covenant, is to point us to Christ. It was preserved for us in the Old Testament so that we may learn from it about the greatness of our sin and misery, so that we dare not trust in our own righteousness. It is like faithful in Pilgrim's Progress, who met this man Moses and kept getting beat by this man Moses. And faithful cried out for mercy and said, Oh, please stop beating me. I cry out for mercy. And the man Moses responds and says, I don't know how to show mercy. And then kept beating him over and over again. And this is what it's like to be under the law. You keep getting beat for your sin. Your conscience is constantly afflicted or distressed. 
because of your lack of righteousness. And the way you try to stop getting beat is to try to do better. It's to try to get your act together. And the more you try, the more you fail, and the more condemnation you sense. But as it was with faithful, the way out is the one who, as it says, came by and bid him forbear. That is, came by and made him, Moses, stop. The one who came by and made Moses stop is Christ. It's Christ because He is the only escape from the brutal beating and condemnation of the law because Christ is the one who took the beating of the law for us. He is the one who stood condemned. He is the one who satisfied the law. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believer, if you are in Christ, understand that the law cannot condemn you. The law can never condemn you. It may alert your conscience the fact that you're going off the road like the rumble strips, but it does it as a friend, not to beat you for failing to measure up because we will never measure up. So the law is meant to point us to Christ to be justified through faith in Him alone. And then and only then do we go to the law, that is the Ten Commandments, as a guide and friend who directs our path in grateful obedience as those who have been justified and no longer stand condemned. As the reformer Samuel Bolton put so well, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified in Christ alone. And the gospel then sends us back to the law to inquire what is our duty as those who have been fully justified. Amen. Well, let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.